Enterprising in my surroundings, I'm finding the quietest estates these days. This representation of Star Brewing amazed that the focus remains the vocal focal point of my change. Hello and welcome to the Rambling Runner Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Chittam, and this is the podcast for all the dedicated amateur runners out there who are working hard to get better while balancing running with the rest of their lives. And we have a two-part show today. So Everyone loves the shows where we talk about and really dive into the nitty-gritty stuff with nutrition, and we do a lot of that today. So we got two people. We got Lori Russell, who is a registered dietitian, a professional cyclist, an extremely good marathoner, and just an all-around interesting person. We're going to go with her for the first 45 minutes or so with a wide-ranging conversation, and we touch on a lot of uh, nutrition talk, and again, it's so important to talk to registered dietitians when you're having these kind of conversations. The kind of the slang term that people throw around is nutritionist, and that's understandable because you're talking about nutrition, but a registered dietitian are the people who really have advanced degrees in this field of uh, work, a field of study, and it's just important to have those people as the backbone of your information. That's exactly what Lori is, and this was a great conversation with her. In addition to that, we have Danielle Ryan Broida, here to talk about the power of mushrooms. And you know, they're a superfood that for me is something that I'm consuming within basically in coffees and teas now. I love this stuff. And not only is it tasty, but it's just so interesting that you know you hear about, you know, mushroom coffee, mushroom tea, things like that. First of all, it does not sound appetizing. Like flat out, that was not my thing. I was not excited to try it now. I don't go a day without it. I love this stuff. I've been using it for months. And it's just so interesting that this is something that is now a staple of my diet. So I want to talk to somebody about it who is well-versed in this. And she is one of the foremost experts in that field. And I couldn't wait to have her on this show as well. So before we get into it, I do want to give a shout out to Prevenex. You know, we talk about health and all of that stuff. Prevenex is at the forefront of what I use to be as healthy as I possibly can be. And in addition, times are tough right now. And if you're like me, you're working at home, trying to balance everything from being you know, almost like a full-time, part-time teacher, chef, playmate with your kids, and get all your work done. It's a lot, and it can be tiring and stressful. And taking care of your health and having the energy to power through your day is now more important than ever. So I want to talk to you about what I'm doing for my health. You've heard me talk about my friends at Prevenex for a while now. Their supplements have become a staple of my health regimen. I've been taking their multivitamin, mineral, antioxidant plus now for over five months, and I can tell you I feel energized throughout the day. Even when I travel, I make sure to take it with me. I'm sleeping better, and I just feel healthier overall. It's a great boost for my immune system, which is obviously important at all times, even more so now. Prevenex's multivitamin is a comprehensive range of essential vitamins, minerals, antioxidants, and all of that in one balanced formula is clinically proven and just studies and studies have shown its effectiveness. But in addition to that, I've seen it for myself. So other listeners have seen it as well. And you can see the benefits for yourself. I can't, rem- I can't recommend it. There it is. Highly enough. I know you'll feel the same way. Go to Prevenex.com. That's P-R-E-V-I-N-E-X.com. And use code RUNNER15 to save 15% on your first purchase. That's not all. They have a 100% money-back guarantee if you don't feel the way I feel about this product. Now, without further ado, Lori Russell and then Danielle Ryan Broida. Hello, Lori, and welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. 
A, it's my pleasure. I'm excited to have you on. Having people who are you know, specialists in the nutrition world is something that connects with so many people here on the show because it's a topic for all people, no matter your ability or speed or anything like that. So it's always great to check in with professionals like yourself and you know, kind of pick your brain um, and also just touch on some basic um, you know, kind of best practices as well. But before we get into that, you have your own interesting athletic background. First of all, as a someone who grew up in the United States and then became a pro cyclist, that's just not something you hear very often. And I'd love to hear the journey that you took athletically that got you to that point. Well, yeah, I ride for Femikeep. It's sponsored by Swiss Wellness, Vitamins and Minerals, and Q&M Agency. It's such a great squad to ride for. Um, it's amazing to be with this group of women, eight women, and we're racing at the top level in the United States primarily. And, you know, I didn't set out ever really to be like a, a pro athlete of any kind, um, especially a cyclist. I really just started as cross training for running, just riding a bike more for fun and less impact. And then that led to some triathlon and then that led to just longer distance riding and fondos and charity rides and then local races. And I started to see that I could get that competitive sense, you know, outside of just running and triathlon, but with riding too. And I was good and started doing pretty well in the races and then just moved up the ranks. So, you know, every sport has its like path to being, you know, an elite or a pro and, you know, with cycling, you just have to really put in the work and get the results. And it's also a team sport. So that adds a really interesting dynamic. Everyone kind of has their role. Um, so I love it. Um, I love running too, but right now I'm definitely a little bit more focused on the cycling part. And with cycling, it's one of those sports that's just so darn time intensive. So when you're really training, or I'd say not really training, but you're when you're at the height of your training and doing serious blocks of work, how long are you on your bike per day at the height of your training? Because I know it can just be forever for so many people. Yeah, um, that's definitely one of the nice things about running is it's relatively short, um, unless you're like a super ultra runner. But for cycling, I mean, yesterday I was on the bike for 120 miles and I think that was like six and a half hours overall of riding. And that was just yesterday. And of course, not every day is going to be like that big. Usually don't go under 90 minutes. And if it's a 90 minute session, you might have two of those a day or, you know, there's a lot of skill work involved too. So I'd say you know, for the heavier blocks, you're looking at, you know, 25 hours of, of actual training time a week. Yeah. So that's considerable. That's for sure. So <laughs> you're also, you know, an entrepreneur, you have your own business and you, you, you consult with a lot of people and you put out a lot of content as well. Are you able to do all of that work when you're at the peak of your training or do you have to kind of cycle through all of this. So you're kind of like at your best at various stages within the calendar year. You know, I think any high level athlete would tell you they would love to just be able to focus on training and not have to work or have, you know, friends or family obligations or any of that. But 
that's just not the case for most of us. Um, I definitely try to prepare myself with writing assignments and content um, to kind of stockpile some things when I have downtime um, and, you know, just get a little bit prepared so mentally I can take that stress off. But I am lucky enough to have that work that I can take on the road and do it wherever I am. So, you know, there's definitely been times where I'm writing articles in the parking lot of a Whole Foods or, you know, after a race getting photos for um, an article. So it, it never really ends, but I definitely try to have a lower load during the race season. Yeah, I can definitely sympathize with that. I've recorded, I think, the majority of my podcast from my car during like <laughs> like during lunch breaks and things right. like that. Um, you know, not certainly not the most glamorous thing in the world. It's worked out just fine. Um, but it's something where you fit it in where you can and you try to make the most of it. That's for sure. One thing that I know we've talked about offline before is just you know, when it comes to hunger and fueling there's no better sport to consider than cycling if for no other reason than i've never been hungrier in my life than after long bike rides i've done plenty of them before i've done long runs as well but a long bike ride dominates long runs in terms of you know basically accruing like this unbelievable appetite for food which feels like it doesn't go away for like 36 hours or so what's been your experience with that and even <laughs> as someone who's you know you know an expert in nutrition um you know how do you deal with that like urgent need for long like, bouts of like meals and eating and after after these long rides um and and, and making sure that you're not only you know fueling your body but you know feeling those taste buds as well. Yeah, definitely. And you're you're not alone. Your experience with feeling extra hungry from the bike is is not unique. Um, you know, because I've done running and some triathlon and now cycling, it's I've gone through the different sports and there's definitely a big difference between how your body reacts. And when you're running, your stomach is kind of jostling around, it's up and down. You tend not to feel that hunger. When you're on the bike, especially when rides go, you know, three, four or five hours, that's pretty much going over a meal time for the most part. So you, your body tends to expect food. You know, for most of us, if we're in a four hour span, that's either going to be whether it's at work or home, you're grabbing a snack, you're eating a meal, you know, there's food coming in. And then for that amount of time on the bike, you're putting in this hard effort you're expending so much energy. So there's this additional need to like want to take in more food that your body already expects to be having. So the best way to go about it is fueling consistently. I always tell people, you know, you can't start too early. Don't wait until you're hungry. Don't wait until you need the food. You know, start eating right away if you know it's going to be a long effort and, you know, be consistently eating. And then, you know, switching it up. Nobody really wants to just drink sugar for four or five hours. That's not going to satisfy the hunger. You're probably going to feel pretty sick from that. So as long as you're able to tolerate it and skill-wise, you're able to, you know, eat on the bike, which is a big part of it, having that skill. Um, granola bars, peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, rice bars are very popular among cyclists, um, you know, 
it's more like the ultra running field where you kind of turn to all sorts of different food, real food options to get you through that distance. And when you're planning that, obviously part of it is what your stomach can take. And, you know, we all have budgetary concerns as well. But when you're trying to you know, figure out how to fuel yourself for one of those efforts, say it's one of those efforts where it's not um, not too much up-tempo work. So you're not going anaerobic, um, you know, all that often. So it's not as if like you have this extreme glucose demand, um, but it's, you know, kind of a fairly either an easy ride or, you know, the, the vast majority of the ride or even a long run is pretty easy. How do you like to arrange the kind of the food types that you're having in terms of their nutrition profile? Yeah. So a lot of it does depend on what you were able to eat beforehand and how far time-wise out you were able to eat. So like kind of how depleted you are going into the ride. Um, you want to start out with a little bit of quick sugar. That's just going to top your energy stores off and get you going right away. And then you know, I really like to alternate it for most rides, especially for the easier ones. You know, when you're not needing to have that quick intensity, which relies on your glycogen, it's a better idea to bring along some real food. So maybe a bite of granola bar or, you know, a handful of banana chips or the rice bars or the peanut butter and jelly sandwich or just the whole banana um, because you don't, you have that time to kind of sit back, eat a snack. You're not digging so deep to where you just need to be going for that sugar. Now, when you're going out on long runs, how does that how does that change what you're consuming? Yeah, so on the bike, because your stomach is more stable, you can definitely tolerate a lot more food. Um, with runs, that's a little bit different. So usually end up having less overall, and you don't get as depleted. So if we think for most people, say a long bike ride is going to be three hours and a long run might be 90 minutes you know, 90 minutes, you're not going to get that deep to where you can't have a good recovery meal or snack afterwards and recover. You know, you can get a lot deeper for three, four hours of time to where it's a lot more difficult to recover. So with the run, you can eat a little bit less, but you definitely still need to have something. And I typically rely on gels for the run just because they're easy to take in. You don't have to stop. Um, you know, you can, you can take them in on the go and they're only about 20, 22 grams of carbohydrates per gel. So you can do one, two, and some people can even do three an hour to get that, the amount of glycogen needed. Yeah. So for that hour and a half, hour and 45 minute, even two hour time frame, it's just about getting by from a nutrition standpoint, as opposed to fueling like you would on the bike. So I wouldn't say get by, you know, if you're, if your focus is on performance, we never want to just get by, right? So you, you want to put yourself in the best position. You just might, it's a lot easier to get through that workout in a good place with only say 40 grams of carbohydrate per hour. Then on the bike, you might be wanting 40 to 90. Um, so two of those gels per hour is a good rule to go by for a long run. Um, uh, I know a lot of runners don't even get that in. Um, but if you go through that 90 minutes, like most of us can get through it without something, but
but that's the getting by point. And then you're going to end it feeling depleted, feeling like you dug yourself a hole, recovery is going to be harder. And if you just put one or two gels in that run, you're going to see yourself move faster. You're going to end the run with more energy. And that's what we really want to do as athletes. Now, what kind of runs are you know, either the, the intensity and or the time on feet do you start advising people to start taking nutrition with them on a run? So it's mostly about the time. Um, if, if you're going really hard, you know, definitely before you head out, at least have a little bit of a simple sugar, whether it's a gel, a sports drink, a banana, something really quick to digest. Um, you know, even if you're only doing 45 minutes, because that's going to top you off and give you that quick energy to pull from. Um, and if you're doing, you know, I'd say 90 minutes is kind of that line to where you actually want to bring fuel out on the run. But I'm going to say I carry a gel with me every run in a handheld hydration pack. I just have a gel in there and I've never been sad that I've taken it with me and then like not had to have it. But if I'm on a run and I felt like I was like dying and depleted and really hungry and I didn't have it, I would regret it. So carry it with you. It's not that heavy and you never know when you're just going to be feeling because there are more things than just the running pace and time that affect how hungry we are or how many calories we need. You know, the temperature plays in a role, the stress plays a role. So you never really know how your body's going to feel on that day. And it's always good to be prepared. Yeah, that's a good point. And, you know, the idea of like just taking one just in case or just keeping one always with you or whatever, I mean, ultimately it weighs nothing. Right. And I've had ones that have gone through the wash. They, you know, they'll be fine. Just put it in your pocket, put it in your handheld, you know, stash it away. You're not going to regret having it on you. You're going to forget you even have it until you need it. And that's key. All right. Have you had a chance to kind of go through um, a lot of the different kinds of um, just kinds of gels that they have? You know, for a while it was like goo was really the leader in the field. And there really wasn't anything else that you would find at like a specialty run shop or even like a sports authority or dicks. And now I feel like there's a, a wide panoply of options and they're more coming up all the time with, you know, different, um, you know, different characteristics, like whether they're vegan or whatever, or gluten free. Do you have, you know, have you tried a lot of these and what have, what's been your experiences as you went through them? Yeah, I've definitely tried several. Um, I think it's important, you know, personal preference is the key. If you take one, there, there are certain ones that I'm not going to name on the market that I cannot tolerate. Just the texture in my mouth is like vomit inducing. If I take that <laughs> one, regardless of how healthy or good quality it is on the run, like I'm, I'm not going to take that. Or if I do, it's not going to work out well. So personal preference is key. You know, you're not going to have it if you don't like it. And if you don't have it, then it doesn't serve a purpose. So make sure it's one you like. And the same goes for flavor. So flavor and texture are really the main differences. Um, you know, most gels are simple sugar. They can be a different combination of sugars. So that's that tolerance component. Make sure that you're having one 
that you can tolerate. Um, I tend to like the honey based ones. They work well with me. You know, some people like more of a fructose blend or, uh, you know, there's, there's so many different ones. I don't love the idea of having like the chia seeds or, you know, I think that's a little hard on guts while running. If you're doing an easier run, sure, maybe. Um, and a lot of the specialty ones, whether they have like chia seeds in it or other, you know, kind of highlights that are getting you away from the sugar, they might be a little bit lower in carbohydrate. So if you, you know, 20 grams of carbohydrate already is on the low end. And then if you're doing like 10 or 15, that's really not enough to get you by for a whole like gel volume. So I'd really make sure whatever you have, like one, you can tolerate it for taste and texture. And then two, it's at least about 20 grams of carbohydrate. All right. So when you say honey-based ones, is this like real honey or is it like, you know, like kind of like a, you know, like a a honey type flavor to it? Like I'm not, I'm not super familiar with those. Um, so there are, there are brands that are maple syrup based, honey based. So I like honey stinger. That's, you know, it's honey and I think it's tastes good. It tastes pretty much like honey. They do have some different varieties of flavors. Um, the maple syrup ones are also really good. And there are a few different brands that go, you know, maple syrup base. And I definitely have friends on the bike that bring, you know, the handhelds that are just pure maple syrup or pure honey. Um, I like the convenience of the sport product and the gel. And some of them have some added, you know, B vitamins or electrolytes in them. So that's something to look for as well, depending on your needs. But um, yeah, I like the I like the honey ones. And they're pretty like... Um, authentically flavored you know they they have even if they're berry they still have that honey flavor to them it's not like root beer or toasted marshmallow margarita which you know i just don't really want when i'm running and then you have other ones that are kind of like a you know i think the i think it might even be honey stinger has the waffles and things like that right so things that have a little bit of texture to them um what's been your experience with those types of those types of on the on the go um, running products. Yeah, I mean for for cycling, I definitely rely on. I almost never have a gel unless it's in a race on on rides. It's pretty much all waffles. I think I ate twelve waffles on the ride yesterday. <laughs> so oh I'm a big gosh. fan. I love yeah, I love the honey stinger waffles. Um, but for running, you know, if you are able to keep your pace, whatever pace your goal is for that run and eat a waffle without choking or any bar or gel uh, gummy product without, you know, choking or struggling with the wrapper, then go for it. Um, Especially if you have some water to wash it down with, but that's pretty much the barrier with running and consuming those foods. So it's not so much of that your body can't tolerate it or that it isn't a good form of sports nutrition because it, it's the same carbohydrate, just in a different form. Um, but a lot of runners will struggle with, you know, getting that package open um, unless you're taking a stop. And if you're you're pausing, which is completely fine to eat that product and then, you know, continuing on, um, you know, it's really whatever works for you. And especially for runners who are going super long distances, whether it's a marathon, um, maybe at a slower time or an ultra marathon, you are going to want to practice training with those solid foods. Um, there, you know, you just don't want to go off pure sugar for 
you know, four plus hours. Yeah, that's for sure. I mean, I can't even imagine going down that route. This is someone who like loves sugar to death. <laughs> I feel like it would be, you know, quite you know an adventure for your stomach because you kind of like go past this point of no return. Like with and running, that's is like the problem. A lot of people will suffer from that flavor fatigue or that gut rot, as we call it in the sports nutrition realm. And once you get to that point and you're just like, I can't take another bite of sugar and then you stop fueling and then you start bonking. So it really pays off to fuel with different sources. I remember when I was preparing and I didn't prepare much, but the one big preparation run I did for rim to rim to rim, I stopped during like a 20 some mile run and ate a sandwich. And I did not want to eat a sandwich, but I like forced myself like you will tolerate a sandwich mid run because you're not going to get through the Grand Canyon without some solid food in you. Um, and it definitely paid off. Oh, rim to rim to rim. So you've done all <laughs> these, you've, you've, you've had this wide array of athletic experiences. So with that being said, obviously you, within that you have goals and you're a very driven person. What sets the goals for you as an athlete? Is it, you know, the idea of like performing at your best in uh, kind of in this level playing field or trying new stuff all the time and seeing what you can make of it? Yeah, I love just being up for a good challenge. So if you ask me, if you call me up and you're like, hey, we have this spot, there's this epic whatever, I'll probably be like, yeah, sure, I'm free, let's do it. Um, and that's how I've come into, you know, most of the pretty cool events that I've competed in. You know, when it's the cycling season, it's pretty, there's a set schedule. Um, you can't really pick and choose too much. Um, but when it comes to running events, I really get to explore more and do more adventure. Um, and then with some of the cycling races that aren't part of like the professional calendar, I can definitely explore more with like longer gravel or climbs. Um, so with Rim Trim to Rim, that's just how that came about. I got a phone call and went um, to act as the nutrition specialist for the U.S. military endurance sports team, which I was um, helping them out with nutrition for a while and their runners wanted to go do this event. So I hopped on with like really little knowledge about what Rim to Rim to Rim entailed um, and I survived. It was awesome. It was a great experience. Um, but yeah, I tend to just say yes to things. And then once I've agreed to it, my competitive side definitely kicks in and I, I want to train and I want to do my best. Man, so many things. So when did you decide that you were going to take um, this serious and basically like, you know, kind of a career in uh, not only in athletics, but in you know fueling athletes and really dedicating yourself to figure out exactly you know what are the best ways that high performing athletes and people who want to be high performing athletes can fuel their bodies to do just that. Yeah, it was definitely uh, I turned to sports first, and then the nutrition followed. I mean, I was into nutrition. I've been into nutrition since high school. I went the dietetics route. Uh, became a registered dietitian in wellness and weight loss. So I had a lot of background knowledge. I was just using my skills for a different population. Um, and just like there are coaches who specialize in, you know, running versus football. There are dietitians who specialize in, you know, 
clinical settings or diabetes, and I was in the wellness and weight loss, and I wasn't connecting the dots at that early point um, to sports nutrition. So it was a lesson in my own mistakes and how I was not properly fueling my body for the athletic events that I was starting to do um, with running marathons, running my first 50 mile ultra race. And, you know, it was really that point where I had to learn to fuel myself to perform, to get the results I wanted, to know that I could continue doing it long term. And it really just sparked that light bulb moment of oh, if I need to do this for myself, I can do this for other people. And I just got really interested in it. And um, yeah, went, got my master's in nutrition for more of the sports focus and then started my business. And now I'm doing my second master's in exercise science so that I can really just have that complete picture of, of how I'm pairing exercise and nutrition together. And what were some of the things that maybe you had gone into this process with preconceived notions of like, okay, this is a great way of fueling me, uh, fueling others. Um, but now as you've learned more and more are things that you've kind of disregarded and learned better over time. Yeah. And at first I definitely went down the path of lighter is better and I wanted to run on empty and feel light and, that got me some immediate, you know, PRs and you get a little fitter and a little faster, but then that's not sustainable for very long. Um, and I had a stress fracture and was in a boot for a few months. And that's when I picked up cycling a lot more, but I also picked up the notion of I need to take care of my body if I want to keep competing. And if I'm having this problem, a lot of other athletes are probably having this problem. And I'm a dietitian, so I shouldn't have this problem. I should know better. Um, so I made myself know better. And I definitely feel like since that point, I'm personally in a much better spot about using food as fuel and nourishing my body. And I really like to use that approach on other athletes to get them the results that they want. And when you think, when you think back to that time where you're focused on kind of lighter is better, and that's something, especially within the cycling sect can be prominent if for no other reason, if you're climbing mountains, weight is a big deal, whether that's weight on your person or just weight on your bike, right? If it can be like, some people can, you know, throw out like an extra, you know, like kind of a spare tube if they feel like it's going to make them ride up a mountain faster. Oh, absolutely. You will see in cycling races, um, bottles just shedding, people just throwing their, their water bottles off of their bike before a big climb just to get rid of that weight. Because I mean, that water bottle, that's a pound on your bike and that makes it harder. So weight definitely comes into play so much so that there are weight restrictions or limitations on your bike to where they can't be lighter than a certain weight. Um, you know, so everyone's kind of playing on the the same fair field as far as equipment goes, um, at least when it comes to weight. And then, you know, it depends on what type of cyclist you are. There are so many different bodies, which I think, you know, the cycling component really helped me open my eyes to fueling a body better or that you didn't have to look a certain way. Because if you look at female cyclists, there are sprinters and there are the climbers and everyone looks different. And you cannot judge someone 
someone's abilities by how they look. And it should not be the marker of your performance to look a certain way, right? So you really just fueling your body. And if you have a little weight to lose, then that can go a long way. Um, or if it's strategic and it's for a specific goal race, like we'll see this a lot in like the world championship races or, you know, for the Olympics, that's a strategic move. Um, but it's not something that should be long term. Like nobody should be holding their race weight for an entire year. It's a race weight. It's for a race. And then you rebound and come out of that. And how about just in terms of fueling and making sure that someone is just generally healthy? I know we've had, you know, shoot, you know, years and years, and this is not going to end anytime soon of, of, you know, dietary fads and quick fixes and all of those sorts of things. So just as someone who is, um, you know, obviously trying to learn as much as possible and yet at the same time teach others as much as you possibly can. What has been you know, the, the key for you of navigating these fads, not only in terms of your own expertise, but making sure that the people you're working with are doing the right things for them? Yeah. I mean, I try to be a voice of reason. I love a good fad. You know, I'm, I'm all about it. I think Fads are fun. I will try anything for a couple of weeks just to see. Um, so I like that experimental role of, okay, if um, vegan diet is really huge right now, I'm going to go on a vegan diet for a couple of weeks and see how that makes my body feel. And it's about how it makes your body feel, how feasible it is to continue, whether that's cooking, shopping for ingredients, you know, what demands does that diet put on your lifestyle? Does it help you sleep? Does it make you happier? Or does it make you really grumpy? Does it, you know, put your body in a bad place of feeling fatigued all the time? So I like to experiment so I can take those aspects to clients that I work with that might be on those specific diets. But generally, I try to get people away from the fads, um, you know, pick and choose the good parts of the fads because a lot of them have a good concept as the underlying principle, but then marketing and sales and gimmicks kind of take it to an unhealthy place. Um, so, I mean, the, the basics of it are to eat food, mostly plants, not too much and be physically active. Right. So regardless wow, of look what at you. of food, you're going like straight up Michael Pollan on me right now. Yeah. I mean, with the physical activity component in there, there's really no, no secret magic shortcut. Like you have to put in the work, you have to use the foods that work for your specific body. And remember that healthy is a very subjective term. So there have been, you know, scientific research proven ways or a population that like the keto diet might work for. That might not work for the runner, right? So healthy is, is very individual what works for my body might not be right for another person or the runner might not want to eat like the cyclist mountain climber or, you know, the football player. So it's, it's looking at what your body needs and really anyone is going to benefit from cutting out most processed foods away from sport foods while they're doing the sport. Um, you know, so reducing the junk a little bit, relying more on, whole foods, especially plants, because we know American adults do not consume enough produce per day. 
Um, and you're going to be in a lot, um, a much better and fitter space because of those small diet adjustments. So it's really, it's nothing secret. It's nothing gimmicky. Um, there's a lot more dialed in sports nutrition aspects of it once we get into higher performance. But if you don't have that good foundation, you know, being able to fuel correctly for, you know, the right sodium amount isn't going to matter if that basic diet foundation isn't in place. Now, using whole foods is basically a phrase now that's almost lost its meaning because it's been uh, almost co-opted in certain ways. At the same time, you actually written a book on, you know, on using whole foods and preparing them in a way that can be done quickly and effectively for a busy person. So when you're touching on this topic with individuals, first of all, what are whole foods and what are some go-tos that you like to use with your clients that have gotten good responses? Yeah, it was really fun to write that book because it made me challenge myself even and, you know, to step away from processed ingredients and, and choose those whole foods. And what we mean by whole foods is things that you can recognize what they are by looking. You don't have to read the ingredient label, right? So you look at a sweet potato and you know it's a sweet potato. You might not know which variety it is, but you know it's a root vegetable, um, or a banana or, you know, even a, you know, for most pastas, you know, okay, it's, it's wheat, flour and water. You know, there's not much that goes into it. Um, so the more you can recognize a product and know what it is, um, the same with like a chicken breast or, um, dried, you know, figs, whatever it might be. Like if you can recognize that item, that's what we mean by more of a whole food or minimally processed ingredient, like, um, like a pasta, like, olive oil, you know, it's not an olive, but it's minimally processed. So if you stick to those foods, that's what a good, you know, diet is going to be based off of. Um, so I was just focusing on recipes that utilize those items. And it's really not that difficult to do. Uh, you know, the perimeter of the grocery store is a good rule. Stock your cart with those items. Um, and then, you know, experiment in the kitchen. And I love being in the kitchen, throwing together combinations. Sometimes they turn out great. Sometimes they don't. Um, but I took the best ones and put them in the book. So it was fun. All right. So let's talk about buying whole foods and using them as ingredients in this era now where, and shoot, man, for the next couple of weeks and maybe the next few months, getting to the grocery store is not going to be as easy as it used to be. So what are some whole foods that are not only delicious and good for us, but maybe have a little bit longer staying power either in our fridge or in our pantry since people aren't making it out to the grocery store like they used to? Yeah, we are in such a strange time right now, and hopefully it won't last too long, but we don't know. And right now, most of us are or should only get to the grocery store, you know, once a week, if possible, really limit that exposure, you know, leaving the house and being around um, the, the rest of the population, unfortunately. And when it comes to foods, you can really do a lot of stocking up on on the same foods you would normally buy, you might just want to use them in a different way. So if you get that bin of salad greens, that's only going to last a couple days. So if you have space in the fridge, you know, it really depends on family size, how many people you're buying for. Um, you want to use the most perishable foods first. Um, and if you don't have room for those items, then really there's a lot of 
fresh foods that will stay good for a solid week. Um, your thicker, heartier greens like kale, your root vegetables, um, citrus fruits, apples, pears, those really will stay good. Um, and then relying on your pantry staples and the freezer. So you can have lots of frozen vegetables, frozen fruit for smoothies in there, your oats, your rice, your nut butters. Um, it's the more challenging part is probably being flexible. So if you go to the store and it really varies on the region that you're in. So I have a teammate who cannot find like carrots to save her life. I go to the store here in Tucson and I can find tons of vegetables and fruit, but there's no rice on the shelf. So, you know, you're walking into a situation where you don't really know what will be there. So having a list isn't really the best approach. You've got to go in there and think, okay, if I was looking for carrots and there aren't any, what do I get now? What's a similar item? Um, maybe a sweet potato or maybe a golden beet. Or if there's no rice, maybe that's going to leave me with quinoa or pasta. Um, so have the ability to go shopping and be very flexible. Now, is there a difference between the um, just nutrition profile within either a frozen vegetable or a canned vegetable? Does it matter which one we choose? So the canned vegetables, the preservation method tends to be sodium heavy. So if you're running in a lot of hot weather and you sweat a lot, um, you might want that in your diet. If you're looking to have a lower sodium diet, you might not want that in your diet. Um, you know, at the moment, if, if this is only lasting like a month or so, then it's not going to destroy you to have some canned vegetables. You can always rinse them off, um, to reduce that sodium content. But if you can get the frozen ones and save the canned items for, you know, beans or, um, you know, if, the, the frozen vegetables tend to be a little bit more like the fresh vegetables. Okay. Got it. All right. And then you can go with, like you mentioned, you do the can with the, with the beans. And obviously there's also, you know, you can get the, the beans in bags and just, you have to hydrate them, I guess. It's just part of the, part of the cooking process. Um, but that's good to know. I, I, you know, I've always wondered that with the canned vegetables and I don't know what it is. Maybe it's just a bit one bad experience and then it, it ruins your taste buds for life. Almost like a bad <laughs> night of drinking will change your appeal to a certain alcohol. But I feel like I've always been anti canned vegetables and I can never put my finger on why, but maybe it's the whole preservation process, which has yeah, uh, I mean, affected don't my taste the best. They're, they're a little like mushier. They, they kind of remind you of like cafeteria eating, um, as far mm. as like flavor is concerned. Um, so the, the frozen ones definitely hold up better. You can get those stir fry blends. Um, there's a lot of different varieties. You can even get like frozen cut squash and sweet potatoes and beets, um, or kale, chopped kale. So there's a lot more variety in the frozen and they are just like fresh, only they're immediately picked and chopped and frozen. Um, and the canned ones go through that extra addition of that sodium and that kind of brininess. And they can be a little mushier um, and not as friendly to the palate. So if you can avoid those and use the cans for like maybe soups or just go with the dried bag route for, for um, all of your pantry staples and then the frozen produce and fresh produce, then that's going to be a little bit better. Now, do you ever use the slow cooker? 
I I have an instant pot and I use it primarily for hard boiled eggs and rice. And that's really it. Um, I tend to not use that method of cooking very much. All right. So what do you use hard boiled eggs for? Because that's one of those things that I feel like if you're in the, if you're in kind of in food planning mode, either because you're a planner by nature or you just have a lot of people in your house and you just want to save time. Um, what do you use hard boiled eggs for? Oh, I love hard boiled eggs. Um, and I put them on toast. I will mash them up with avocado and hummus and spread that on like a seed cracker or a toast or just eat it with a fork. Um, I put the everything bagel seasoning on hard boiled eggs and just eat that as a snack. Um, yeah, they're, they're a great high protein little portable snack. Um, and just easy to do a whole bunch of them at once and then have them in the fridge able to like grab and go for a snack or to kind of smash into the egg salad um, and have as a sandwich. Yeah, for sure. How long do those things last in the fridge for? For me, that's never an option because I just devour them anyway. But I feel like with all the stuff going on, like being able to like maximize fridge space is like such a big deal for so many people, including me. Uh, I just want to make sure like I know how long these things last for because I feel like you know, I don't want to make sure that if I'm going to be cooking a lot of them in a short period of time, that I'm not wasting them if they're going to be in the fridge for too long. Yeah, you've you've definitely got a few days. I'd say, you know, after the three, four day mark, they might start to lose their freshness a little. They're probably not going to be dangerous for you, um, you know, until close to a week. But, you know, if you can eat them in the first few days, especially if you're eating them whole, you know, as a snack, that's going to be, you know, the best tasting after that. Maybe mash them into an egg salad. Um, but towards that end of that week mark, you, you probably want to use them up before that. All right. Last thing before we get going, I know when we spoke earlier, I told you that I was having someone come on after you to talk about uh, basically mushroom coffee and all the things that people are using mushrooms for these days. And you let me know that you were a huge fan as well, which I was like, this was like so funny because like, when I was telling my family that I was, you know, talking with, you know, a company for Sigmatic that did this sort of thing, they all basically looked at me sideways. So it was funny to see like <laughs> a brother in arms who was also on that train. Yeah, I am a big fan of the mushroom coffee and mushroom powders in general. So adaptogens are items that help your body deal with stress better internally. So they just kind of act as that protection inside of you. And those are things like the maca powder or the cordyceps and the reishi. Um, turmeric is a good one. So any of those little powders you can have to, to boost your body's ability to respond to stress, especially as an athlete, because you're not just having the stress of daily life, but you're having the stress of, you know, that is exercise induced. So I start my day with a latte and I use when I'm not on the road. I'll use regular espresso, um, but I do add a little bit of cordyceps into my morning latte, and that's just supposed to be a good endurance energy booster. Um, it's something that I buy into in the fact that it's not hurting me, so hopefully it's helping me. Um, so I'm going to go with you know it's based off a of mushroom. It's probably going to be good for me, and I definitely add it to my latte every morning. So I'm a big fan. There you go. All right. 
Thank you so much for coming on the show, Lori. It's been a pleasure to not only speak with you, but to follow along with your athletic journey. Thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. Hey, Danielle, thanks for hopping on the show. Right on. Thanks for having me, Matt. It's my pleasure. All right. So I learned about Four Sigmatic years ago as a faithful listener of the Rich Roll podcast. I know you guys have been aligned with them for a long time. So this is when I first heard about it. And I'm not going to lie. I think I had probably the same first impression that the vast majority of people had, maybe even you had. And we'll talk about this. Uh, when when I first heard it, it was like mushroom coffee. I was like, okay, well, that's not something I'm ever going to try. <laughs> um, spoiler alert. I absolutely love this stuff. And I just want to talk about it because I know it's, you know, it's a genre that, you know, whether it's teas, coffees, elixirs that a lot of people indulge in. And it's so different and unique. Normally, I don't do this sort of thing with sponsors, but because it's such a, I love the product so much. I was like, all right, I want to reach out to these guys and see if someone like yourself can hop on just to tell people what it is and why it's so useful and important and things that, you know, can so be actually important is not necessarily the word. I guess beneficial is the best word for it. But when you first were introduced to the idea of mushroom coffee or mushroom elixirs, what was your initial reaction? Okay, so I'm definitely biased. So I have a, skewed perspective that's probably different than most. I'm an herbalist. And so these weird, obscure ways of putting our plant or mushroom allies into different things is kind of the name of the game for me. And I was so excited by the idea of mushroom coffee. So essentially how I found Four Sigmatic, I had a clinical practice. I'm based in Boulder, Colorado, and my practice was functional mushroom based. So I was working with a lot of people uh, that had autoimmune conditions, chronic illnesses. I also worked with a lot of athletes and functional mushrooms were the center of my formulas for all of these different bodies because they were one of the safest, most effective options for this wide range of ailments that I was seeing come through my door. And I really wanted to empower my clients to be able to understand what it was that was nourishing and healing their bodies and give them the tools. So eventually they didn't have to see me anymore. That was always my goal. First day they walk in my office and I say, okay, I know that we've been successful when you no longer have to come see me anymore. And so part of that was giving them the tools to be able to use this plant mushroom medicine on their own. And mushrooms, especially these functional mushrooms that we'll dive into in a little bit, they're really bitter. They're really hard to extract. They're not the easiest thing to incorporate into your daily life. But what's so different about them than most of our other natural medicine is that they're called tonics. So they're they're meant to be taken every single day. They're not a band-aid. They don't work short term to just have an effect for a day or a week where we really see them most effective is they build upon themselves. And so it's really challenging to get people to start something new, especially something that I'm asking them to do every day. And so I found Four Sigmatic and looking for an easier, more delicious way to essentially get these functional mushrooms into a daily routine. And almost everyone, 63% of Americans drink coffee every day. They have some sort of routine, some sort of beverage. And so the idea, I had never thought of it myself, but the idea of adding these super potent extracts into the routines that already exist, I was like, this is incredible. 
and started actually buying Four Sigmatic to uh, incorporate into the the clinical work that I was doing. Yeah, in in the book that I'm reading now by BJ Fogg, uh, tiny, basically, I think it's called like Tiny Habits or something along those lines. It's fantastic. And he talks about habit building in the sense of, you know, taking a new habit and basically compounding it onto an existing habit, right? So maybe that means like doing calf raises while you brush your teeth, right? Like you're already brushing your teeth. It's just doing a new thing, you know, on top of it. I'm not going to dive into the book. That's not why we're talking, but it's, I know exactly <laughs> what you mean. With that said, and I want to touch about like why, basically what these um, tonics, as you put them, do for you. I just want to touch on one thing here because like the, the language that you use and how you talk about this is obviously extremely informed. You're an expert in this field. At the same time, for someone like me, it also raises red flags when I hear some of this like, all right, this sounds like, you know, I don't, I want this to be, um, beneficial without it being the byproduct of placebo or magical thinking. And I think when we delve into this genre, especially when it's new to people, you know, and for me, I was definitely one of them, is trying to decipher the real from the wishful thinking. Yeah, and there's a lot that we can unpack with that. So especially when you're buying something like functional mushrooms in the marketplace, there's some really key things to look for. And there's a lot of products out there that I think don't, you know, are we're, they're, they're trying new things. Like this is still kind of a new frontier, um, which is interesting because these functional mushrooms are incredibly time-tested. There's so much history and tradition in cultures all across the world from Siberia to Korea to traditional Chinese medicine. And yet, for those of us in the Western world, they're really new. It's not something that we've been using that has been part of our life where it has been in so many other places around the world. And so from a herbal perspective, these exact species that we're talking about and drinking in our coffee have actually been used for thousands of years. You know, we have different ages on how long ago they were actually written in a text about 4,700 years ago, first written in the oldest traditional Chinese medicine. It's called a Materia Medica, essentially an encyclopedia of all of the natural medicines. And then we have traditions where we're seeing um, these species depicted in Siberian caves that have been dated anywhere from six to 12,000 years old. So the relationship between humans and these exact species of mushrooms is nothing new. And yet in the Western world, it's definitely new to us. So essentially the way that I think about what we're doing is reviving a tradition, carrying on this really, really ancient practice of using these time-tested medicines in a way that makes sense, that's easy for the modern world. So yes, it's new to be drinking mushroom coffee. And at the same time, understanding how you're, how and what part of the mushroom, there's a couple pieces we can get into there, like what you're using. And that's really going to determine um, the potency and the effectiveness of whatever functional mushroom product you're using. 
All right. So the one that I love is just the, the you have a lot of different products. You guys were nice enough to send me a box of different things. And the one with the, the mushroom coffee with lion's mane is one that I, I basically, I've already gone through it. <laughs> I use it every day for a while. I just finished up my last, my last packet yesterday. So people aren't aware, you know, you basically, you, you, you boil, you know, some water. I think this one's for seven ounces. The instructions are right there. It's so easy to do. You pour seven ounces of water in your coffee cup. And then you, you know, op- open up the package, pour in the, the powder, and then stir it around, and then it's ready to roll. Um, basically, you know, I drink it black, and I don't normally drink black coffee. I just have it with no addition, no nothing in it. It was fantastic. I loved it immediately. And one of the questions that I had before I tried it, and I guess I still do, is that when you say mushroom coffee, the first thing that I pictured was like mushrooms that are ground up into like little, like basically like ground up mushrooms. And then you think like that's like, it's like almost like a coffee grind. It's like a coffee bean grounded up. And I think I was like, oh, is this mushrooms just grounded up? Like what exactly is in it? <laughs> yeah, great question. So it tastes like coffee. And I agree, I'm drinking a cup of mushroom coffee with lion's mane as we speak because it is real coffee. So we are using 100% organic Arabica coffee. And then we're adding these mushroom extracts into the coffee. And so essentially what that means is we're using the actual mushroom. That's the first piece of carrying on this tradition. That might sound weird, but there's actually two main parts to quote unquote mushroom. There's the root system. It's essentially, um, you know, it's, we refer to it as the mycelium. And then there's what is above ground or outside of a tree, which is the fruiting body. That's the mushroom itself. So you can think of that like the apple on the tree is the actual mushroom. So one thing to note about these mushrooms that we're using, they're so different than the culinary varieties that most people think of when they hear the word mushroom. They primarily grow on trees. They're really hard. They're tough. They have a bitter, earthy, almost more of a tree bark flavor rather than that umami mushroom flavor that so many of us think of. And so they don't taste like mushrooms because they're not like any mushrooms any of us have probably had before. Um, and so that's the first piece of it. And then it's not just that they're ground up. Actually, mushrooms, you wouldn't get any of the benefits if that was the case. And the reason that is, is these are super tough. We can maybe link a picture of a chaga or a reishi to the show notes. But they're these really, really tough, almost look like rocks and or, you know, tree bark. They have they're just so different from that classic button looking mushroom that is the mushroom emoji image that pops in our minds. And mushrooms should never be eaten raw. So if we were just to grind up these mushrooms and add them in our coffee, we actually wouldn't get any of the benefits. So this is something really important to look for when you are buying, whether it's Forthmatic or any other mushrooms in the marketplace, is making sure they've been extracted. And that's so important because they have this compound in their cell wall, and people don't have to remember this, but it's called chitin, and it's the same compound found in crustaceans. So think about a lobster shell, how tough that is. That's what's comprised of the cell wall in these mushrooms. And so if we just grind them up and eat them or throw them in our coffee, it's almost like just having fiber. It's just going to go right through us. Because what this chitin does is it acts like a big door that's binding up all the beneficial nutrients from our bodies being able to access it. So essentially, these mushrooms need to be extracted. That big cell wall needs to be broken open 
so that our bodies can access everything inside. I like to think of this like uh, everyone's at home right now. So we'll use the example of the door to your kitchen. So this kite in the cell wall is the door to your kitchen and you're outside trying to get in because you know there's all the veggies and fruits and whatever else you have stored, all this delicious nutrition in that kitchen. But unless the door has been opened, there's no way you can get in there. So that's the same thing with our mushrooms. And so what extraction does is it breaks open that door so that all of these compounds become bioavailable to our bodies. And so that's what we've done. We've taken these mushrooms and we've extracted them. And we can. there's a couple different ways to do that. But the important point is that they've been extracted and then they've been spray dried. So it's essentially this big dehydrator that turns the extracts back into a powder. And that's what's combined with organic coffee or different spices for our chai or matcha or all of these different products that we create. All right. So the benefits of coffee are well known and there there seems like there's more coming out all the time um, in regards to just the effectiveness of coffee, not only from a caffeine delivery system standpoint, but just there's other plenty of other benefits as well. What do mushrooms bring to the table once they're added to the coffee in terms of their health benefits? Yeah, absolutely. So the way we can think about it is most of us already drink coffee. We're creating a better for you option. So the biggest thing is that we already do it. We know that these mushrooms work consistently. I used to tell my clients, the medicine doesn't work if you don't take it. So the biggest reason for switching to mushroom coffee is we do it already. It's really easy to make that a habit. And there's a couple things that happen when you combine these functional mushrooms with coffee. So we'll talk about our lion's mane coffee because that's been top of mind today and I'm drinking it and you've been drinking it and I'll send you as many new boxes as you want. So don't worry about that. (laughs) We want you to do it every day. Uh, But there's two functional mushrooms in there. There's lion's mane and then there's a mushroom called chaga. And we'll start with chaga because... It's been top of mind lately with everything going on with the world because chaga is incredible to support our immune systems. It's called an immunomodulator. And so we're all looking for really root-based ways to support our immune system right now. Chaga is one of the most antioxidant-rich foods on the planet. Um, It's, yeah, just this incredible kind of super house, powerhouse of um, antioxidants and immune support. And so when we add that into our coffee, we're one, getting those benefits from the mushroom itself. It also helps break down the acidity of the coffee. And so that's why a lot of people are like, whoa, this tastes so good. It doesn't taste bitter. That's how um, I felt too. I felt the exact same way. I was wondering about that. And it was that's why I you know, tried it black, just like how you try food like before you put salt on it. Like, all right, let me totally. test, try it first, <laughs> and then I'll add something. I had the creamer ready to go, and I'm like, nah. Now I'm putting it back. Like I, I think this is probably better without it. Right on. Yeah. So a lot of people that say they they love coffee, they don't want to give up their habit of doing it every day, but they experience negative side effects, whether it's acidity on their stomach, it gives them a bellyache, or they get a crash or jitters. And the mushrooms really help to counteract many of those negative side effects. And so the first part of that is what we just spoke of with chaga. And then it's at least with our instant coffee, the one that you were drinking, it's half caffeine. So there's 50 milligrams of caffeine in a full cup as opposed to there's usually about 100 in a regular cup of coffee. And then we've added this other mushroom called lion's mane. And 
I like to say half calf double the benefits because I always want people to think about why they're engaging in a certain habit. So when we're talking about coffee, asking ourselves, what am I actually looking for from the cup of coffee? Part of it is routine and it feels good and it's just part of our ritual. But a lot of times I ask people why and they say, well, I want to turn on, right? I want to turn on my brain. I want to turn on my body. I want increased energy. And yet we don't want the crash and the sidefall that comes later in the day from that. And so with lion's mane, lion's mane, we call it our brain's best friend. It's this incredible functional mushroom that supports creativity and cognition and thinking. And so it's almost like we're honing in on that why. Why are we actually drinking coffee? Let's cut the caffeine in half and actually add this ingredient that's going to get us to where we're actually wanting to go from that cup. Does that make sense? It makes a lot of sense. That is not only what I read about for Sigmatic, but that's just been my experience. So um, for me, I wouldn't be doing this segment if I wasn't a true believer. Uh, I went in as a skeptic and now I'm a true believer, which I think, um, you know, as someone who's, you know, there's plenty of things in life that I'm positively predisposed to liking, like running shoes, for instance. (laughs) Like you don't have to sell me (laughs) on a running shoe. I'm probably going to like it. Um, This sort of thing is not necessarily in my wheelhouse. So I wanted to have you on because... Hey man, I love it. And it like really like rings true with the phrase, like there's no zealot like a convert. And that's exactly <laughs> how I feel in regards to this stuff. Right on. Thank you. Yeah. And that's the thing. No matter what we say today, it's always give it a try. Figure out how you feel. If you don't drink coffee, we have so many other products for you. We have caffeine free options. We have hot cocoa for the evening. We have protein. We have mushroom blend that you can mix into whatever you're cooking. We have edible skincare now. I mean, we're really trying to tap into what are all the things that people do consistently and how can we create a better for you option infused with these super, you know, the world's most nutrient dense researched ingredients like functional mushrooms into these daily habits, these daily routines. That's great. All right, Danielle, we're going to get going. Is there anything you want to say before we do? Um, yeah, so I guess I just want to leave you guys with what we're working on doing at Four Sigmatic. What I feel like I'm doing in my personal life is trying to make it really easy to bring super nutrient dense ingredients into your daily lives. There's so many reasons to be like, oh, I'm not going to do that. Or, you know, if it doesn't taste good, if it's not convenient, I feel like so much of the time in the wellness world, we have to make these choices between something that tastes good or something that works. And what we want to do, what I want to do is really be able to support our bodies from this root-based place, no matter what we do, whether we're athletes or school teachers or working in X, Y, or Z field, it's so important to be able to think about our bodies from a place of building ourselves up so that we are strong, we are our own warriors to take on whatever it is going on out there. And so that's the approach. How can we support our own bodies, really build ourselves up, whether it's through mushroom coffee or nutrient-dense ingredients in other ways to really show up and be the most vital versions of ourselves every day of our lives. That sounds great. All right. I'll have links in the show notes for everybody. Also, you can just go to foursigmatic.com. That's four spelled out, sigmatic.com slash rambling. Danielle, thank you so much for hopping on. Thank you, Matt. Lori, 
Danielle, thank you so much for coming on this show. This was so much fun. I really, really appreciate it. In addition to that, thank you to our sponsors. We got Prevenex and Four Sigmatic. I love these guys. Again, for me, these are not only uh, companies and people who believe in you, who believe in this podcast, but I believe in them. And that's exactly why they've been a part of this journey for me for such a long time. It's why I use their products constantly, and I would be doing so even if they weren't sponsoring the podcast. Frankly, I was using their products before they were sponsoring the podcast. So go check them out today. In addition, we got some great episodes coming up. Uh, if you haven't seen it already, we had a really good one with Stephanie Bruce two weeks ago. Earlier this week, we had Des Linden on for the third edition of Rerun. We talked about her iconic victory at the 2018 Boston Marathon, an epic race, an unbelievable performance, and she went into chapter and verse and exactly how that happened. It was one of the... You know, we say it's an iconic race. For me, it was one of the iconic moments of my podcasting career to talk to Des about it. And if you haven't listened, go check it out today. Thank you so much for listening, for rating, for reviewing, and sharing the show. It means so much to me, as do all of you. Thank you so much, and happy running. This has been a production of Rambling Runner Podcast. This podcast is produced by David Margetti of In Post Media. Thank you to Meta P for the music. His song, Righteous Path, featuring Rex Mayhem and Chip Fu, is produced by Symphonic Bang. Yeah. Enterprising in my surroundings, I'm finding the quietest of states these days. This representation of storm brewing amazed that. The focus remains the vocal focal point of my change. I'm trying to show this industry.